For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. Folks in the back would love to help you and help your kids and help everyone. The rest of you, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. We are in uh, the book of Isaiah again this morning. That's in the Old Testament. It's one of the biggest books of the Old Testament. 66 chapters. It's long. Um, And we're in chapter 11. Probably familiar to a lot of you who have been churchgoers a long time. If you're and you haven't been a churchgoer, that's that's cool because hopefully we'll we'll uh, help you make some sense of it. But here's what we're doing. The last three weeks. Um, we have taken this Advent season to look at um, the the promises that God has made and the ways in which God fulfills those promises through a king, through the coming of this person named Messiah. But I say that word, and my guess is that most of us aren't really familiar with what it means because we say Messiah and we think um, Savior of our souls or something similar to that. But the word Messiah in... In the, in the Hebrew from which it comes means anointed. It means king. And so what we're talking about with the coming of Messiah is the coming of God's king. And so uh, three weeks ago we looked at the promise of the king from 2 Samuel 7 where God promised, I'm going to make the world right through this one guy, this, this king, this ruler who's going to make all things right. And then in Micah 5, two weeks ago, we looked at the role of the king and how he would what he would come to do, the job description that he had. And then last week we looked at the rule of the king from Isaiah chapter 9, just a couple of chapters before this. And in all of these, I hope if you've been here for them, you've heard a few things get repeated. Some themes maybe that have been repeated. One of them is that um, all of these hopes, all of these hopes in which we celebrate in Christmas, even if we're unfamiliar with the fact that we're actually celebrating them, all of these hopes are grounded not on our work for God, but on the unmerited promise of God. That the hopes that we have for ourselves, for, our, for the world, are not grounded on our work for God, but on God's unmerited favor of us. Another theme, and one that our passage today teases out, is the coming of peace. Uh, the, the way that the Bible talks about all things being made right, the, the presence of our flourishing all of our relationships lining up just as they are meant to. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the coming of this peace. So if, if you have your place in Isaiah, uh, whether it's in the Bible or in, the, in your bulletin, if you'd stand in honor of God's Word, that's our habit here. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Like I've said many times during this series, these are familiar passages to many of us in this room, and the danger in familiarity is that we let it wash over us because we think we get it. 
But God's word is living and active, which means we need to attend to it again as if he's speaking afresh to us. Because guess what? He is. So let's hear it in that way. This is God's word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." And in that day the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar and Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is God's Word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, some of us are coming into this place this morning desperate to hear from You. Needy. I would count myself among them. Others of us aren't really sure why we're here, and some of us are here, and we are excited. Wherever we are, Lord, we need you to meet with us. We need you to speak to us, to open our hearts to hear from you, and to understand your word and light in our minds. We need you. And so we pray that you would meet us here, that you would let Christ and all that he has done become uh, great in our eyes, and let everything else, even if just for the next... uh, half hour or so, fall away. We need to hear from you. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. You know what it is? You know what it is that makes me cynical? No, not everything. Funny. Some of y'all know me, but that's, no, not everything. What, What tends to make me cynical is this this practice that we have in our society and culture of, of bold over-promising. It's like those infomercials that claim that their product can remove any stain. Any stain. As if. Or the, the latest book that claims that they alone, for the first time in all of human history, have discovered the secret to a great life, to financial success. All of these secrets that no one else has figured out in thousands of years. They have figured out how to get rich or to be successful, to get your kids to do what you want. Hmm. Yeah. It's like the latest candidate telling you that he or she alone has the ability to make change. Or the young church planter who who knows that he's going to change the world because he is awesome. That last one is purely hypothetical. Purely hypothetical. That's 
just for the sake of argument. Uh, if you're anything like me, this is what makes it really hard to believe some of the Bible's bolder claims. Because they sound like the over-promising that we hear day after day after day. And, and, and they, what we tend to do when we hear those things and we get cynical is we will push off those promises to some otherworldly place. Right? So we read what we hear in Isaiah 11, and it sounds crazy, and what we do is we go, that can't ever be, won't heaven be awesome? Because that couldn't possibly be something that takes place here. The problem is, if we read the Bible honestly, it's very difficult to do that. If we read when Jesus is on the earth in the Gospels and he tells, he's beginning to push back sickness and death and alienation and all this stuff, and people are like, what's going on? And he says, well, if I do this by the Spirit of God, it's the kingdom of God that's come upon you here and now, not in some otherworldly existence. The Bible seems to not hesitate in giving these promises. And our passage this morning does that. Without uh, apology. And it does that not because of some greatness in the, the claim itself, but because of the greatness of the one who makes the claim. So this morning we're going to look at this uh, passage in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin, as always. We're going to look at the agent of peace. We're going to look at the character of peace. And then we're going to look at the advent of peace. Okay, Peace is agent, it's character, and then it's advent. Ready? All right, let's look first to the agent of peace by seeing him as an agent of the Spirit. Look down at those first two verses. Now, if you are here last week, you probably remember some of the context I set for you, but if you weren't, that's okay, I'm going to set it again, right? The context that we are dealing with now is the same that we were dealing with last week. Remember, one of the things I said is that the prophets, when we read biblical prophets, they are not speaking into a vacuum, into some timeless, amorphous uh, place. They're speaking into a historical situation. And so what's going on is Isaiah is in the, the 8th century B.C., in the 700s B.C., and, and what he's doing is he is preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had been divided into the north that was called Israel, and the south it's Judah. Judah's capital is in Jerusalem, and he's preaching to Judah, trying to give them hope in light of this national um, aggressive militaristic power called Assyria. And what Isaiah is doing is he's trusting them, or he's encouraging them to trust in their God who has promised grand things and will keep those promises. But those promises are not um, vacuous. They're not uh, kind of cloudish. They're not in the sky. They're rooted in a person. Look at verse 1. It says, A shoot is going to come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, this is interesting. I doubt very many of us are familiar with this Jesse guy because he really appears in like one chapter in the Bible and then goes away. However, his son is very famous. His son would be King David of David and Goliath fame. The, the prototypical king of God's people. Now, scholars don't really know exactly why Jesse is named and not David, but one probable reason is that um, the coming of this king, this king that was to come, would be a king like David, so it would make sense to mention his father and, and the coming of David himself. Uh, it, it kind of draws out the idea of David uh, as if David were coming again. So be a great king like David. But, but uh, the reason a shoot is coming up from this stump, why is Jesse a stump? 
These stumps are rather dead, are they not? I mean, apart from the fact that Jesse literally is dead, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that David's line, this line that came from Jesse, had messed things up royally. They were kings. But they messed things up royally. A a shoot shoot is going to have to come up from that dead stump because they had just messed things up. the, The kings that had come from David's family had been a mixed bag at best. And most of them not faithful to God at all. And what God is promising, once again, he's going to make something great come from something that is seemingly insignificant. A shoot is going to come up from this stump. This stump that's been cut off. And this person, this shoot that's going to come up is going to be a man of the Spirit. Right? Isaiah says right there that the Spirit of the the Lord will rest upon him. By that, it means the Holy Spirit. So if you're new to Christianity, if this is a new um, experience for you, um, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And what we mean by that is that the Christian view of God is that God exists as one God in three persons. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, not one God in three forms or three expressions. Uh, One God, three persons. All are equally God, and yet they are distinct in their personhood. Okay? You're like, what? I know, it's taken a long time for the church to figure that out, and we still, it's more of a mystery than anything else, but we have to declare it. It's what the Bible says. And so the king that is going to come is going to have the Spirit of the Lord rest upon him. And what that means is that he's going to be empowered and filled with the very presence, the, the power of God through the Spirit. And what is great here is that these different aspects are talked about. He's going to have these, the Spirit of uh, wisdom and understanding. Right? The spirit of counsel and might. The of spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Okay? So here's what this means. All of these things, wisdom, understanding, uh, counsel and might, uh, knowledge, fear of the Lord, all of these things speak to someone's ability to understand and to navigate reality. Not just with what our eyes see and our ears hear, but be able to understand and navigate reality through wisdom, through understanding, through knowledge, all of these things. That last one is probably the one that's probably the hardest for us to get with that. The fear of the Lord. That's interesting because it doesn't probably mean what you think it means. We hear fear and we think terror, right? Horror movie. That's what we think when we think fear. Uh, but, but in the scriptures, it doesn't mean that. It means it's, it's kind of a, an elastic term that in one sense means honor. But I think in this sense, um, Psalm 19 verse 9 is what should inform that. Some of you may be familiar with Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19 is this great uh, expression of, um, uh, it's, it's, like a, it's like a love song for the Bible, which makes sense if you understand what the Bible is to Christians. Uh, but in it, it, it places the fear of the Lord in parallel with um, God's Word. So one of the things that the fear of the Lord can be is God's Word. And that's what it probably means here. This king is going to be able to understand reality clearly because he understands God's word. In fact, it says he delights in the fear of the Lord. He delights in it. It's in it is his delight. And he is, so he is empowered by the spirit and that leads to hope. Look down at verses 3 to 5. He's not going to judge by what he sees or hears. In other words, his judgment is going to be because of the Spirit, his Spirit-empowered understanding. And because he's empowered by the Spirit, that judgment will go beyond externals by what he sees and what he hears. And the result of that is going to be hope for the needy and the poor or the, the meek of the earth. Okay? Now, for us, 
The person who's in the role of ruler and the person who's in the role of judge are separate, right? We believe we're Americans, separation of powers, blah, 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 blah. In the, in the ancient Near East, that wasn't this case. The king was the one who actually judged cases, the most significant cases. The role of judging was expected to be one of rulers during that day. And for these, the powerless, those with nothing to offer, uh, the idea that they are going to actually receive justice would bring great hope. Because that wasn't normal. And my guess is we probably get that because of what we think today. You and I have these things. We call them stereotypes, right? The less friendly way of calling that, saying that, is prejudices. We all have them. To pretend that we don't is foolish. We all have them. Whether they're racial or socioeconomic or geographic. Right? In other words, like, if I begin to talk slow and with a drawl, most of us in this room will begin to assume that I'm unintelligent. Right? Um, or if, uh, if we see... Um, hmm. If we see a young black man walking down the street in a certain kind of clothing, there are a lot of people in here who will begin to, to feel threatened for no reason. Or um, if we hear someone with a British accent, we begin to think automatically they are the opposite of the person who speaks slowly and, and has the drawl, right? They're super intelligent just because they are British. We have these. But these things are inherently unjust because they generally lump everyone together without knowing the person. That is judging by what your eyes see. The result is, the result of judging by what your eyes see generally is that the most vulnerable and powerless are overlooked when it comes to justice because they have nothing to offer. But this king, it says, will be righteous and faithful and with his word, evil is destroyed. That's what we get in verse 5. Let's look at that again. Righteousness will be the belt of his ways, faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And then he says, sorry, that's verse 4. He says he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Do you see that as hopeful? See, my guess is you probably see judgment as a bad thing, right? And that is because you are not an oppressed and persecuted group of people. Because if you were oppressed and persecuted and thought of your cause as having no champion, the idea that God, who sees everything clearly, is going to come and judge the earth would be of great hope to you. Because finally, someone with power is going to be looking out for me. Someone is going to come and rescue me. Over and over again in the scriptures, God's judgment is seen as a grace. It's a means of grace. Because for evil to be removed, its agents must be removed. Interestingly, though, I don't know if you noticed this. Isaiah says that the way that this dude is going to do this is not with military might, but with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. In other words, his word is what is actually going to make change and bring about the judgment of the world. It's not an act of warfare. So there's going to be hope for the weak. There's going to be hope for the needy. There's going to be hope for those who are in need of rescue because of the agent of peace. The second half of this passage speaks to the incredible effects of this ruler on the world. He's an agent of peace who brings a peace with an incredible character. Because not only is he going to come to judge evil and to execute judgment, but it's going to have a tremendous effect on everything. Look down at verses 6 to 8. 
Because first it creates a world of security. Here's what's going on here. All these pairings, right? Look at, look at them all. You've got wolves and lambs, leopards and young goats, calves and lions and blah, 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 kids and snakes. Like, everything that's going on in here is a pairing between someone, something that is strong and dangerous and something that is vulnerable. Right? There is nothing more vulnerable than, than a nursing child who's putting its hand into the den of an adder. If you're not sure what an adder is, it's a, an insanely poisonous and aggressive snake. And you're just sticking your hand down in its nest. That's a terrifying image, right? The point of these, though, the point of all of these, is that these vulnerable things, whether they're young children with no, uh, with, with no protection, or um, young goats, calves, lambs, the point is that they have nothing to fear. They have nothing to fear. Think about that. They have nothing to fear about those things that are strong and dangerous. How is that possible? See, what this is saying is that people, the strong and the weak, will live in reconciled relationships with each other. You see that? A lot of times I think we read this and we forget that Isaiah is talking to people. And we think, oh, isn't this great? He's giving us this image of, an, of creation where, where we can walk up and pet lions and they're not, you know, they're, they're chewing the cud. Like, no, no, this is, this is a metaphoric way of talking about what's going on with people because he's speaking to a group of people who feel insanely vulnerable and defenseless in light of this national, uh, militaristic, aggressive group called the Assyrians. And he's saying, look, when this king comes... It's going to be like all of these, you'll have nothing to fear from the strong and dangerous anymore. All of those relationships are going to come and get lined up. Now notice what it doesn't say. It does not say that the strong are no longer strong or the vulnerable are no longer vulnerable, does it? That's the vision of Marx and Engels. Everyone's exactly the same. It doesn't say that. No, no, there's still lions. There's still wolves. There's still strong and powerful groups and people, but they no longer are a threat in spite of that reality. See, that, that's what makes this more mind-blowing. It's not the elimination of all distinctions. It's the, it's the reconciling of those distinctions so that instead of fighting against each other, they are flourishing one another. In spite of those distinctions, these folks will live in reconciliation. So he creates a world of security, but it's also a world of worship. Look down at verse 9. The earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, that's easy to gloss over that, but, but I'm going to ask you not to. Because you see, in Isaiah's day, only Israel, and at this point, only Judah, this tiny little landmass of all the peoples in all the world, actually know the one true God. Think about that. Tiny little speck on the national stage, on the geopolitical landscape. They're the only ones who had knowledge of God. Now, that word knowledge does not mean information. Okay, That's how we see knowledge. It's not how uh, Hebraic people, Jewish folks, uh, understand the word knowledge. In Hebrew, the word knowledge means an intimate relationship. It's the same word, frankly, that's used of the relations between a husband and wife. And I don't mean just, good morning, honey, how are you? Right? I mean, like, marital relations. Okay? We good? We got that. All right, moving on. So, that knowledge means, that word knowledge means that, the, that all, of, all of the world, 
will have an intimate, personal relationship with the living God. And this may surprise you, but this is actually how the Bible understands being a Christian. Being a Christian is not about keeping rules for God. It's not about keeping rules for God. It's being reconciled to God. It's being in a reconciled relationship. And so what this means is the world will be filled with an intimate relational knowledge of the Lord. In other words, the image of Isaiah is that everyone will worship God. Now that sounds churchy, but I need you to listen. Because everyone in this room, everyone in this world worships. And maybe you're here and you're not religious. You're like, but I'm not religious. I don't worship anything. Actually, the Bible's argument would be you do because the Bible would argue that all of us were made to worship. Because to worship something just means to ascribe to something ultimate value. And everyone in this place, everyone in the world ascribes to something ultimate value. Now, for some of us, maybe that's God. For others of us, that may not be. Maybe, maybe with others of us, it's, it's reputation, or power. Something as, as fleeting as pleasure. But it's all worship. It's all ascribing ultimate value. The crazy thing about what Isaiah is saying is that somehow this king, this king is going to bring us to a place of ascribing God with ultimate worth. And that sounds crazy enough for us because we live in, in what is changing in our society. Though We're in the valley. It takes a little longer to get here, but it's still here. We live in this post Christian society, right? It's crazy enough when we, we, when we as Christians, if you're a Christian here, are starting to feel the press of, of a cultural shift where it's like, wow, no one really agrees with me anymore. The news flashes, no one really did 20 years ago, 30 years ago either. They just were more quiet about it, okay? But the point is, is that that's crazy enough for us to think about. Think about how it must have sounded to those who were hearing from Isaiah. When people in the rest of the world hadn't even heard of who God is. I didn't even know who he was. So he brings a world of security, a world of worship, and then finally a world of restoration. Uh, look down at verses 10 to 11. Isaiah tells us that the root of Jesse is going to stand as a banner or a signal for the peoples. Um, here's what that means. In ancient warfare, you can imagine... They didn't do uniforms. They didn't have flags on their, on their sleeves. In ancient warfare, it was very difficult at times to tell who were, who were the guys on your side and who were the guys that weren't on your side, right? So one of the ways you would do that is they, someone would be in the back holding a banner. It's a huge flag of some kind of insignia that let you know, oh, those are my folks. And if you ever got confused, you'd run back to the banner, okay? You'd go back to the banner, and you know that whoever's standing with you there is on your team. You're not going to have to worry about getting stabbed in the back. Here Isaiah is saying that this ruler will become a banner and that all the nations, all those that fight against each other, who scheme against each other, all of whom gang up on Israel, that all of these are going to come and flock to this one ruler. In other words, he's going to bring about a reconciliation of people and nations to one another. They're, going to, they're no longer going to be mar- marked by their allegiance to any identity other than him. Think about that for a second. The identity that will matter to them, if you're, in a, if you're in a war and you've got a sword and a shield, maybe you lost your shield, you've got a sword, the only identity that matters to you in that moment is on whose team you're on, right? 
Identities are, are for us not only ways that we define ourselves, they are also the ways in which we define ourselves in opposition to others. Right? It, that's the, what we do. We do this with things as trivial as, as uh, colleges and teams, right? Who's in Hokies? Mm, you better get that one clear in here, by the way, because if you get that one wrong in here and you come in wearing orange and blue, someone's going to take you out. I'm just saying. You know, skins and cowboys, Red Sox, Yankees, Cavs, Warriors. We do that with trivial things and things not so much. Like race, like political ideology, like gender. But Isaiah is giving us a picture of a world in which people are reconciled to each other and to God. Where where we no longer betray one another. Where we love God and others. And all of this comes not because of so great advancement in philosophy or the elimination of differences or our great programs and individual efforts. It, It comes because we finally place our identity, our core of who we are, underneath the banner of the king. And everything else doesn't go away. It just becomes marginalized. So that what draws us together is far greater than those things in which we are prone to divide ourselves by. Those are great promises, right? But what does this mean for us here in this place, especially during Advent? Well, let me say three things by way of application. You and I, like everybody else, wrestles daily. And maybe not daily. Maybe not daily. Maybe that's overstating it. But regularly with the notion that things in the world are not the way they're supposed to be. Right? Uh, you hear it, uh, you feel it in experiences like um, experience of my wife and I from six years ago, Thursday. Where you walk into a pediatrician's office and you're told that your two-year-old has cancer. We know it when we hear stories of children whose lives are threatened by poverty. We see it in stories on the news about abuse of the weak. We even sense it and feel it in our own broken relationships at home or in our workplace or with ourselves, why we can't seem to ever change or we we beat ourselves up for things or or we feel it. The scriptures are honest about that too. I don't know if you knew that. See, I think a lot of times we think the Bible takes like this Pollyanna view of things, but it doesn't. It's very honest about these things. It calls them evil. Did you know that? It calls them evil. That's what they are. When we turn away from the God who loves us and give our trust and ultimate value to things like money or acceptance or pleasure to make things right for us, the Bible calls that evil. When we are cruel to one another and seek to coerce one another for our own gain, whether that's with shame or with power, the Bible calls that evil. When we prey on the vulnerable and call it good business, or when we abandon the poor and call it encouraging personal responsibility, the Bible calls that evil. When we use one another sexually, either in person or through pornography, for our own gain, or when we simply misuse our sexuality outside of its created intent, the Bible calls that evil. And when we self-aggrandize, thinking that we are better than others because of our morality, or our economic situation, our success... Ignoring our own failures to make ourselves feel better. 
The Bible calls that evil. So you see, we have a problem because on the one hand, we desperately want someone to come and to put down evil. The evil that we see. And so did people during Isaiah's time. But their problem is the same of ours. We're in this sticky wicket because Isaiah would say in chapter 11, someone's going to come down and put down evil. And then he'd say in like the next chapter or in two chapters later, but guess what? You're part of the problem. The problem isn't, that, isn't simply that God's going to put down the wicked. The problem is that we are numbered among them because we do these very same things every day. We can hope for God to come and judge the wicked, but what happens when we're them? And let's not pretend we are. See, this is where the gospel of Jesus comes in. Advent is about the coming of this king, the coming of this ruler. But he dealt with wickedness. He dealt with evil very differently than what we thought he would do. He took, he, he, he dealt with the wicked by taking their place. He dealt with sin by becoming sin. So he came and he lived in faithfulness and righteousness, as this prophecy says. And then he took the place of those like you and me who sin every day, deserving to be swept away with the rest of the brokenness of the world. That's really confusing to some of us. Because how can, why, why would he do this? Well, he did this, friends, because he loves us. Not because we did anything for him. But here's the thing. And if, if this steps on your toes, um, I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm just going to prepare you. Jesus didn't do this for those who don't think they need it. If you're here this morning and you're like, no, nah, I'm good, God. I'm fine. I don't really... I mean, these promises are great. I can't wait to be a part of it. But, but I'm not among those people. I'm not like those people. I don't, I don't really need a Savior. I just need a, a hand up. <laughs> just need a little help. But nothing that bad. If you think you're okay that God is lucky to have you because you think you're better than the person next to you, or at least better than whatever stereotype you have of the bad guy, can I tell you, you are living in an illusion. Before God, sin is sin. We are all broken. We all sin against one another. We have all turned from God. But the king that God promised, Jesus, came to make us right. He came to bear the judgment we deserve so that we might be found under his banner, united to him. And some of you are thinking, Rick, Rick, that sounds good, but you just look at what I've done. You're not hearing me. There is nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. Jesus rescues us by grace, not by us being worthy. You can't, and he isn't asking you to be worthy. Okay? But what is that going to mean? Like last week, we talked about anticipating the fullness of Jesus' rule in one particular way. You remember that? We talked about how it plays out in the way in which we approach the world. There's another way that I want to talk about it this morning. Uh, because this passage is so much about reconciled relationships. I want to talk about that. Okay? Whatever else this passage means, it at least means not only that our relationship with God is restored, but also that our relationships to one another are restored. 
In, um, in, in one of the books of the New Testament, Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a ton of the New Testament, says that one of the things that Jesus did is that he destroyed those walls that we put up between us and other people that, that keep us separate. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility, is what it's called, and united us to himself. And so, if you're a Christian this morning, that means that you are part of a restored and forgiven people and called to go out into the world to be a people of restoration and forgiveness. The problem is, is that you and I don't do forgiveness. Do we? Let's be honest. We don't do forgiveness. We do avoidance. We may do marginalization. We say we forgive, and really what that means is I'm going to hold something against you quietly, and I'm going to frame any relationship I have with you based on that. Biblically, though, forgiveness is not avoiding issues or people. Forgiveness is giving up our right, let me say that again, giving up our right to justice. And risking being hurt again by seeking to have that relationship restored to what it was before sin disrupted it. I often say it this way. Forgiveness is the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. The only way I would qualify that is saying for the repentant betrayer. Okay? So let me get specific. When someone hurts you, you are not forgiving them by never talking to them about it. You are not forgiving them by avoiding them until you aren't mad anymore. You aren't forgiving them by simply holding a grudge forever. Forgiveness is more costly than that. And as Christians, we should be the, the very first people that get that. Because for God to forgive us, it cost his life. If you think forgiveness for you will be less costly than what it costs God, you're crazy. I can forgive this person. It's not going to cost me anything. I just got to sit over here. And, I mean, God certainly wouldn't want me to be uncomfortable by actually talking to them. I, you're crazy. Forgiving means being willing to bear the weight of the offense for the repentant offender. In other words, being willing to risk that person hurting you again. Now, let me say this clearly. That does not mean it will always work. Some of you all know this, right? You've been around a lot longer than me, and you get it. Like, that sounds Pollyanna. It's not. It's not always going to work. There are some people who will refuse restoration. Some are going to refuse to own their stuff. I didn't do anything wrong. They'll give you the, I'm sorry, but. I don't know if you knew that. I'm sorry, but means I'm not sorry. Right? That's not, but. When you put the but, no longer sorry. Okay? Just for further notice. Um. And in some cases, in some cases, such as abuse, forgiveness will need to look very different. But the reason why, if we're honest, we don't move towards forgiveness with others is because we're afraid of what it will cost us. Friends, Jesus frees us to lay down our life because he has secured it in himself. And so if you're in this place and you're living outside of reconciliation with other people, maybe there's people in this room that you're like, That person is just, they've hurt me. I'm going to get over it. It's going to be fine, but you can't get over it. You can't bear it. Because there is a role for bearing with one another's brokenness. But if if you can't, 
then you're not living in forgiveness if you're not ever talking to them about it. Especially with other Christians, friends. Like, look, we're Christians. If you come to me and you're like, and I'm opening myself up to this, there might be a line later. If, I, if you come to me and you're like, Rick, uh, when you said da 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 da, or when you did this, man, that just did it. I don't have to be threatened by that. I know I'm jacked up. I know I mess up. I know I hurt people. Right? Defensiveness breaks the relationship. But I can, I can come and I can hear that with, with grace and go, you know what? You're probably right. You may not be, but you probably are. I don't have to be threatened by that. I can say, you're, you're right. Can you pray for me? And I can go to someone else and say, hey, this wounded me because I'm not asking for a pound of flesh. I just want relationship back. Jesus frees us to lay down our life because he secured our life with his own. Okay? Last thing, I'm running a little long. Last thing, I want to speak to the other clear implication here, and that's the goal. The goal of Jesus coming is for the earth to be filled with the intimate knowledge of the Lord. Listen, for those of you who know what this means, I understand that you are in a PCA church. And being in a PCA church generally means you are not here to hear about evangelism. Right? If you know what that means, like, if you're in a Presbyterian church, evangelism is not what you thought you were coming into here today. You thought you were coming, I am here for good theology. It's going to be uh, meaty. But, (laughs) but, the goal of Jesus coming is for the earth to be filled with intimate knowledge of the Lord. The Bible is clear that we were made for God and are most what we were made to be when we're in relationship with him. That means that all of us, all of us, you, me, our neighbors, our coworkers, everyone will flourish truly when they flock to the banner of Jesus and have an intimate knowledge of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe, look, we're getting ready to gather with family in just like a week, right? And some of y'all have family and not Christians. Do you believe that your family members who don't know Jesus the only way for them to truly flourish is if they did. Or you just kind of hope that we're just going to leave each other alone. Do you think that's loving? Because what you're honestly saying at that point is, I don't really care enough about you to be uncomfortable. Eh, you're not worth it. I'd rather just eat my ham or my roast or my turkey and watch a basketball game. If you believe that people are flourish when they, have, when they have intimate relational knowledge of God through Jesus, how does that belief play itself out in your relationships with those who aren't Christians? Because my guess is that we're afraid, right? I'm afraid. I'm no different than you. It's not like I, I'm, I'm afraid to. But what we're afraid of when we think about helping people encounter Jesus or inviting them to church, we, we end up being afraid of what? Their anger? How dare you invite me to this place that's so meaningful to you? How dare you? How dare you? Is it simply looking foolish? As if we're telling people we believe in uh, some fairy in a red suit. Right? Listen, your value is wrapped up in Jesus. 
not in the opinions of others. Remember that identity thing? Your identity is not in being cool and hip and uh, intelligent. Your identity is as, a, as united to Christ. And because of that, you can lay other things down. Don't be fooled, friends. I, God will come one day, and He will fully sweep away sin and brokenness. Oh, and praise Him that He will do that. This is why this church is here. And if you're a member of it, this is why you became a member of it. Or if not, it's what you signed up for and maybe you just conveniently forgot it. We are here to help people encounter Jesus. We're not loving others by withholding from them the one who came to save them. We're not loving them. Keeping them from the one who came to give them peace. Would you pray with me? Lord, I think there's no greater challenge in the the life that you've called us to as Christians than to live as a forgiving and forgiven people. Maybe it's better if I reverse that. Living as a forgiven and forgiving people. Because we are called to forgive others as you've forgiven us. From that forgiveness to forgive others. Because from that forgiveness, Lord, we know that we were not worthy of forgiveness. We didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, couldn't possibly earn it but we forget that and that's why we have a hard time forgiving others. And so Lord, as we, as we finish this up, I just want to, I pray that you would help us in the next few minutes, maybe it's just in the next few minutes, to see the weight of our own unworthiness before you and how you have loved us freely. Not just to see our unworthiness, that would be to sit in self-loathing, but to see it in light of your great love for us. Now, as we see that, Lord, would you, would you move us out to be a forgiving people? Forgiving not just one another, but in seeking to have other people be forgiven by you as well. Help us to become a people who help others encounter you, know you, and then go and show you to others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.